Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. I'll count it down. Three, two, one. Hi, Karen. How's it going? Good, Anne. How are you? Good, good. Trying to decide what I'm going to be for Halloween. Ooh. And, it's, and Halloween's only in two days, so I better hurry fast. I have an old... I have an elephant mask that I always take out from the closet when the kids come for trick-or-treating. So <laughs> I'll put that back on. What about you? Are you going to dress up? Um, yes. I am still enamored with the inflatable dinosaur costume, T-Rex. <laughs> wow, that sounds cool. And you need to send me pictures. Oh, yeah, I will. Yeah. It's yeah. super fun. And it's warm in there. Yes. Oh, there you go. Because it's like, yeah, 50 degrees here. So, um, yeah, let's talk about some interesting breastfeeding topics. I have a whole slew of them lined up for us to discuss. I cannot wait. Yeah. The first topic is entitled Breast Hypoplasia and Decreased Lactation from Radiation Therapy in Survivors of Pediatric Malignancy, a Pentac Comprehensive Review. There were a lot of authors on this article, like it came from multiple centers. And the interesting thing is that there are just, there's very little literature. This is so interesting because, you know, we talk about this among ourselves. Like we just assume that, um, that we have a fair amount of experience with people, with children, you know, adolescents who've had Hodgkin's disease and have, have had chest irradiation or children who've had, you know, radiation of their uh, breast region for some other reason. This is mainly a review of the literature. So this article, the first author is Andrea Lowe, and this article was accepted for publication in August of 2021. And they say that there are actually very few studies on the effect of radiation in the chest region in children and associated lactation outcomes. So this report is a literature search of peer-reviewed articles that have evaluated breast hypoplasia and lactation outcomes after chest radiation therapy in children. So it's most of the studies have actually looked more at breast hypoplasia with asymmetry in breasts rather than true lactation outcomes. So the authors go on to say that the most common reason for chest radiation um, are going to be medial stinal um, radiation. There is going to be, I should say, medial stinal radiation therapy for Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, total body radiation before a stem cell transplant, and bilateral lung radiation therapy for a metastatic Wilms tumor, which is a pediatric kidney tumor or sarcoma. They found 789 abstracts, but there were only two studies that measured the patient's perception of having hypoplasia in related to the dose of radiation that they received. And these are individuals who as children received radiation to one breast for a large hemangioma. Uh, I guess it, you know, was just so large that they felt like radiation was necessary to calm, to, to uh, reduce the size. B 
because the radiation was just on one side, the patients reported when they were older, their degree of breast symmetry on a scale from zero to four, with zero being no difference and four being a very large difference in appearance or size. And they did find that the higher the amount of radiation to the breast with an angioma, the greater the risk of asymmetry with likely destruction of ducts and fibrosis of the breast. But they didn't measure lactation outcomes in that, in that particular group of studies. And interestingly, there's only one study that looked at lactation outcomes as an endpoint of hypoplasia, which was among 83 patients who were given radiation therapy for Hodgkin's lymphoma between the ages of 14 and 40. 30 of the patients were under 21 at the time of diagnosis. And uh, the lactation endpoint that they measured was simply, did you have one successful breastfeed, which you know, doesn't come close to what we really want to know and be able to share with our patients in terms of you know, prediction of what might happen. Um, so the authors identified that this is you know, not great, but this is like the easiest way that they could actually get true data because they couldn't really ask people like, what percent of a milk production did you have? Or you know, did, how much did you supplement? Because this could have been years ago. So they found that 66% um, of the children who are under 21 had successful breastfeeding attempts. So they were under 21 when they had the radiation, I should say. So 66% of those had successful breastfeeding attempts. And for those who were specifically between 14 and, and 15, 75% said that they had successful breastfeeding attempts. But there were no studies on chest irradiation in children under 14 and the effects on lactation. So really the bottom line is that we have such little data um, on the effects of chest radiation in children for various cancers and subsequent lactation. It does appear though that undergoing substantial radiation to one breast during childhood for a hemiangioma can cause lack of growth in that breast. And from my point of view, I would just anticipate that it's going to uh, not produce much milk. In fact, I mean, I usually tell people that anyway even if they didn't have radiation, if there's like significant difference in sizes of breasts and one looks hypoplastic, it's really uncommon to see that breast sort of like, you know, do its work or kind of be the producer like the other one. Don't you agree? I do. Although I'm really interested in the topic because, you know, as we say, sometimes like there are people that have very small breasts, even while they're lactating that have a large amount of milk and vice versa. And yeah. so, you know, that discrepancy in size certainly indicates that there was something going on with that smaller breast because otherwise their genetic potential was to, to have that larger breast unless there was, you know, some other tumor or something in it that was making it unusually large. But so interesting. Yeah. I think that outcome, I mean, honestly, I think that outcome of one successful breastfeeding is hundred percent useless because yeah. like that's really in most patients view, did the baby latch onto the breast, which doesn't tell us anything about milk production. Right. Um, yeah, no, I agree. It, it's not, uh, it, it's definitely not ideal. I think that one thing that maybe would be helpful is if someone had radiation to their breast or chest when they were young is to ask how their breast grew in pregnancy. And, if, and especially if it was asymmetric so that one breast was irradiated, you could ask like, did that breast change during, during pregnancy? Yeah. Um, I but, wish we uh, had more uh, objective ways to measure breast growth. I feel like, yes. you know, lately I've been thinking about just the patients I see who have like really significant 
engorgement or edema. And sometimes it lasts much more than the first week. And we don't have any way to measure that. Like, I don't have a, like, I want to put the calipers on the areola and measure, like, what is the compressibility of this person? Like, the different factors that all get attributed to tongue tie problems that really are not on the baby side at all. Yeah. Well, um, so we're going to do an art and science at breastfeeding conference. I able is going to in on February 9th. So save the date for all of you who are listening. It's going to be online as a webinar. Laura Hernandez and I have been talking about using ultrasound to monitor breast growth during pregnancy and then see how that growth relates to milk production later on. And she is going to share some data with us on the preliminary work that she's been doing with calves. So we're super, I'm super excited to see that. And she finds that the ultrasound tool really does work well to identify glandular tissue. So I think that, you know, the next phase is going to be trying this out on women during pregnancy to measure glandular growth using ultrasound. Super interesting. Tell her, I also want her to see if she can uh, help to quantify um, interstitial edema in the breast in the postpartum period. So we can get a better handle on that. That would be really interesting. Absolutely. The other, another topic that I have is about breastfeeding and cortisol in hair in children. Have you ever had patients ask you if they could get like hair analysis? It seems like it's been around for a long time. I mean, I honestly have really only heard of it in terms of drug testing. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of information you can get from here. It's not something that we typically do very much in like allopathic medicine or major health systems, but I know that I've had patients who've sent in their hair to like these online places and I think maybe some naturopaths do hair analysis. But anyway, this was sort of interesting. Uh, this was a study that came out of a population-based trial cohort in Sweden known as the ABIS, ABIS study which stands for all babies in Southeast Sweden. I love these cohort studies so much. There's so much information that we get from these large cohorts. So um, in this region, all parents with children born between October 1st, 1997 and October 1st, 1999 in Southeast Sweden were asked to participate in this study with the aim to study how genetic and environmental factors contribute to the develop of immune related diseases such as type one diabetes. So the researchers collected vast amounts of data from at least a thousand questions, just about birth alone. And then they kept collecting data when the children were ages one, three, five, eight, and then when they were somewhere between 12 and 13 years of age, they collected, they collect blood, stool, urine, hair samples. They're just trying to get like as much data as they can. It's very robust study. In terms of breastfeeding questions, they did ask pretty good questions about exclusivity versus partial breastfeeding and compare their answers with data recorded at the well-child exam. So they wanted to make sure that the recollection matched what they were telling the doctors or the mid-levels or whoever they saw the nurses at the well-child exams. So in this cohort, um, approximately 78% of the children were breastfed exclusively for three months. And Although only 10% were exclusively breastfeeding at six months, 69% were still breastfeeding at six months and 44% at nine nine months. So it's actually fairly good breastfeeding rates. The researchers for this particular study uh, wanted to look at cortisol and breastfeeding. uh, And they actually chose 106 children in this cohort who had hair samples 
given at age eight? And were there also was pretty good information, like good data on their breastfeeding history? Um, so they chose hair samples to measure cortisol because hair is considered a pretty good uh, measure of stress over several months. And hair grows at about one centimeter a month. And the researchers ended up using three centimeters and one and two see over the course of the three months, uh, the cortisol levels. And what they found is interesting. They found that there was a significant difference in hair cortisol levels at age eight based on the duration of breastfeeding. And the longer the children were breastfed, the lower their cortisol levels on average. And again, this is at age eight, cortisol levels were also higher for children of younger mothers versus older mothers for those delivered via cesarean and among children who were among uh, mothers who were smokers. But uh, they controlled for all of that. And despite those things, it still ended up that these children had lower cortisol levels. So, um, so what they, they basically say that this relationship between hair cortisol and breastfeeding duration persisted after adjusting those factors that I mentioned, in addition to something called the index of psychosocial vulnerability and the age of the mother at delivery. So they have this like overall, like, you know, score of, you know, how stressed or how vulnerable these kids are based on their psychosocial situation. And the authors wondered if this lower level of physiologic stress as measured by lower cortisol is one way that breastfeeding actually reduces illnesses such as childhood obesity and autoimmune diseases, because we know that infl inflammation increases at risk of autoimmune disease um, and obesity. So yeah, so it's kind of interesting. I, I mean, I, it's just a correlation, like they don't, they didn't go into a lot of detail as to the association, but it reminds me of the information that Nils Bergman shared with us about breastfeeding and cortisol early on and how skin to skin just kind of really dampens that cortisol and um, leads a child into a life of perhaps feeling less stress overall. So I thought that was, that was interesting. Just one more feather to put into the cap of Nils Bergman to prove that he's right on his theories about skin to skin. I mean, it's amazing what people study just yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I wish, I, I wish they had more information. I mean, I, yeah, was, I, there's probably, a, I'm sure there's a lot of data coming out of that, that cohort uh, data, you know, a lot of studies that are coming out. It's interesting to me that they chose that, that particular association. A third study is interesting. It's called, and this sounds very complicated for anyone listening who's not uh, trained in chemistry or biochemistry. And of course, I've been around for a long time. I don't remember a lot of my chemistry principles. Anyway, this is called brown fat activating lipokine 12-3 dihome in human milk is associated with infant adiposity. I tend to be really interested in anything that talks about milk components and the correlation with, with adiposity because it's so interesting to me, so interesting to me clinically that my patients who are breastfeeding are just not taking the same volumes as formula fed babies. In fact, I had a mother, I just spoke to this afternoon before we, I contacted you, Karen, who said, you know, my baby is seven months. And despite the fact that my baby's growing, mom, my baby still only takes three to four ounces of breast milk in a bottle. 
is that okay? And I said, yeah, it's completely normal. And she said, well, everyone I know is taking all these large bottles of formula. And I said, I know, we just don't understand that. And um, I think this kind of study, which I'm gonna go over, helps to explain this. So the question is, what is brown fat and what is lipokine-12,3-dihome? So brown fat is a type of fat that's in our bodies that tends to be more abundant in, children, in infants. And it gradually transitions to white fat as we age. Adults still have a little bit of brown fat, mainly in their upper chest and neck regions. And it's brown because it has a lot of iron in it. And um, so adult fat, which is white fat, really works to insulate us. It stores energy. It secretes adipokines, which are molecules that help control all sorts of metabolic activities like energy balance, food intake, satiety, inflammation, and, and metabolism of our steroid hormones. And I often explain to my patients that white fat to me is like the blob that takes over the body and sends all these messages to make you do things like eat more, sit down more, feel more depressed. Like it's, I feel like it's invasive, you know? Um, I, not that I, I don't want to get into the whole thing of like fat shame, you know, that fat is bad, but I do think that people don't feel well when they have too much fat because of all of these hormonal um, and other chemical messages that come from fat. Um, so white fat has a tendency to make people feel poorly. So they tend to eat more and end up feeding that white fat uh, because of these, some of these messages like adipokines. Um, so brown fat has a different function. Brown fat is really to provide energy to generate heat. And that's why babies are, one of the reasons why babies are so warm, they feel like they're little ovens. They have this fast metabolic rate because of that um, higher amount of brown fat. Um, and part of the reason why babies have more brown fat evolutionarily is because they are at higher risk for hypothermia. So that brown fat helps to keep them warm. You know, they just have like large surface area to, to mass ratios. So, you know, they don't, you know, we keep a lot of our energy like in our core and babies don't have as much of that. Like their surface area is pretty big for their overall size. And so they can dissipate heat really quickly. So they need that brown fat to make, you know, to keep themselves warm. For adults, what's interesting though is adults can increase their brown fat. Um, so exposure to cold and to exercise increases our brown fat activation and activating our brown fat to keep us warm, to keep our metabolism up, does reduce our cholesterol and improves our insulin sensitivity. So trying to make more brown fat by those healthy behaviors um, of, um, of exercise, for example, is great. And it makes me think about like, you know, the tradition in some Northern European countries of going into the, uh, into the sauna and then going outside and rolling in the snow, which we do in Northern Wisconsin. <laughs> it's something I grew up with. My friends and I would go up North, we would get into the sauna, we'd then get really hot, we'd go outside and roll around in the snow and get really, really cold and then come back in. And, and you know, there, I think there are often studies that it's really good for you. And I think it probably generates more brown fat. And the other thing that's interesting is that beta, beta blockers, you know, have you ever heard, you know, when, when patients take beta block, you, you do peds, so you may not hear this as much, but when I, I, I just want to say, no, thank you to the rolling around in the snow thing personally. Okay. <laughs> go ahead with the beta it's blockers. It's I just needed that to know about that. Um, anyway, um, beta blockers, which we use, you know, in adult medicine for high blood pressure and also for like- We do too. Yeah, you do too. Yep. Except that adults complain more about side effects 
on beta blockers in kids do because adults oftentimes will say that they feel really cold all the time when they take beta blockers. And I've always wondered, that's interesting. I wonder why they feel that way. Maybe because their heart rate's lower, but actually it reduces brown fat activity. Uh, so, and I would imagine you probably don't hear that too much from kids because kids, you know, they love being, you know, in cold weather. So anyway, what does this have to do with breastfeeding, right? <laughs> like, well, this must be a breastfeeding podcast. This article is about the fact that a lipokine called 12,3-dihome has been found in, in breast milk. And the lipokine is a lipid that acts like a hormone. It signals inflammation. It has an impact on insulin sensitivity and overall metabolism. And this particular lipokine regulates brown fat fuel uptake and its thermogenesis or you know, basically it's activity in generating heat. So the more of the lipokine, the better, because it makes brown fat work harder, it keeps people warmer, and it uses the white fat as the fuel to generate that energy. So brown fat is good because it helps you use your white fat uh, more effectively. And humans also generate more of this lipokine. They make more 12-13-dihome when they are exposed to cold and exercise as well. So the researchers in, in this study sought to evaluate the relationship between 12-13-dihome 12, 12, lipokine levels in breast milk and infant weight gain, because it would make sense, right? If there's more of this lipokine that's trying to get the brown fat to like work harder, then you'd think that those babies would actually weigh less. Um, so they wanted to look at this level in relation to infant weight gain, BMI, and body composition. Um, so this was a cohort study actually then enrolled 58 mother infant dyads at Oklahoma University Health Sciences Center and the University of Minnesota. They did exclude some people. They excluded uh, mothers with a history of smoking, gestational or pre-gestational diabetes or other health conditions that could influence maternal or infant weight such as steroid use, congenital anomalies or something like that. The mothers did provide milk samples at various intervals at times, really when they came in for the well child exams is, is when they gave these milk samples. And those were times that the infants were measured for height and weight. And um, so in addition to looking at the relationship between the milk lipokine, lipokine levels and the infant weight and height measurements, they also tested whether the, whether the maternal exercise affected the amount of the lipokine in their milk, because as I said before, exercise will increase the lipokine. So the question is, does that, will that have an effect on the infant's metabolism by increasing the lipokine in the breast milk? And so this was actually done with just a subset of 16 of the dyads. So after one month plus part of the way that they measured exercises, they actually gave them a prescription for exercise. So they had them walk for three bouts of 10 minutes on a treadmill at a, at a particular heart rate, just to standardize exercise intensity. So they did find, so there's the, what they found is that there was a pretty vast range of concentration of the lipokine from, it was really vast, like from 0.3 nanograms per ml to 54 nanograms per ml. So that's like huge. And what's, what's really interesting is that there was more 12-3 dihome lipokine in women who were taller. <laughs> the taller the mother, the higher this lipokine, which is interesting. And uh, there was no difference in uh, maternal age, parity, weight, pre-pregnancy BMI, or gestational weight gain in their lipokine levels. They did find association of the, of the lipokine with infant measurements. And by one month postpartum, 
the, the higher the level of the lipokine, the less subcutaneous fat in the infant. So they found that the higher the lipokine levels correlated with lower weight for length scores over the next six months. So these babies tended, so basically the infants were leaner if the mother had more of this lipokine in her breast milk. So they did also find that those women who exercised had a higher, they actually raised their lipokine level more than those who did not exercise. They raised it by like 50%. And, um, and then they just wanted to look like at another measurement to make sure that this is accurate. So they looked at a molecule called succinate because uh, succinate is like a metabolite of brown fat activation. And they did find higher succinate levels were associated in the breast milk were associated with lower infant BMI at six months. So it's so fascinating. So in conclusion, they suggest that milk levels of brown fat activating metabolites, which is this lipokine, may play a role in the weight gain and adiposity in infants. And they don't know to what degree maternal exercise influences infant BMI. Um, but I would just say this is not the only mechanism that seems to be associated with lower BMI in breastfed infants, because there is that research that shows that maternal exercise also has an influence of um, this breast milk oligosaccharide 3 sialylactose, lactose And um, they find that BMI in human infants is lower with higher amounts of that oligosaccharide, which is something that was shown by Christine Stanford at one of the research lectures that we had. So yeah, so it's really, I mean, this is so cool. Like oligosaccharides and the lipokine can have an influence on how much your baby weighs. That's so cool. We can help to, and, that, and those are like the mechanisms to help to reduce the risk of obesity. I mean, so that's uh, remarkable. I'm sure it's the next thing that formula companies are going to want to recreate to put in to try as they continually right. do to replicate. Well, you know what? If they can't, if it works to reduce the risk of obesity among, you know, formula fed babies, perhaps that would be good. But I mean, when you take these things out of, you know, take them just isolate them separately from all of the cofactors and things like that. Like who knows, you know, whether or not. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting though. I mean, particularly with the way that people who are successfully exclusively breastfeeding are sometimes, you know, told by their medical providers, Oh, you know, your baby is gaining more slowly. We need to do something about like, we just. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think the thing that bugs me the most is when, when providers say, oh, your baby went from the 14th percentile to the 11th percentile over the course of two months. I'm like, that's just a difference in a big poop. I mean, that's not much of anything. <laughs> like leave them alone. We like, used to use a big ballpoint pen on a paper chart. You couldn't tell the difference between exactly. 11 and 14. Exactly. Right. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So we can, we'll come back to that topic when we have more data on it. That sounds great. Um, I'll enjoy geeking out with you some more. What else are you going to yeah, tell me? Yeah. Well, I want to talk to you about prolactin because, Yay. you know, we, we do talk about prolactin at times and like, when should we measure it? What does it mean? This is really just a case report uh, about women who have low prolactin. So the title of the article is Prolactin Mutation Causing A-Lactogenesis Insights into Prolactin Structure and Function Relationships. 
the this was actually published by a couple authors from the Division of Endocrinology uh, at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City and published in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism in June of 2021. So you've seen women who have normal appearing breasts, right? Who just like have no growth of their breasts in pregnancy. There's no milk production. Um, you can't think of anything that happened and you know, there's just no milk, right? Um, so other than Sheehan syndrome, where we know there's an infarction or death of the cells in the pituitary from something like a drop in blood pressure postpartum or, you know, frailty of vessels, capillaries because of um, poorly controlled type 1 diabetes, there is, there is one study that suggests that in, inflammation of the pituitary can cause low prolactin. So that would be, you know, called hypophysitis which is an autoimmune disease to the cells of the pituitary gland. So we know that that does happen. Well, this is a case report of two generations of women in one family, two sisters and a niece who never had their milk in them. And uh, their prolactin levels were under 1.5, whereas for this particular lab that they use, a normal level is anywhere from 2.8 to 30 nanogram per milliliter. All of these women actually had normal menses before pregnancy and they had no trouble, the sis, so it's two sisters and a niece. So it's one of, one of the daughters, you know, a daughter of one of the sisters and then these two sisters. So the two sisters, they didn't, they didn't have any trouble getting pregnant but the niece underwent some uh, infertility work but they all ended up having kids. So one sister had three live children, the other had two. They had no lactational changes during pregnancy or postpartum. And the niece had two births and, and didn't have any milk come in either. So the researchers actually ended up doing genetic analyses on these women, and they actually found a genetic mutation associated with low prolactin levels. So I think that, um, you know, that's all. I mean, that's, all, that's basically it. You know, they're like, yeah, we found the genetic link here. We can see it, you know, on the chromosomes. And so I think it was, you know, I wanted to bring it up just because it, it is worth um, checking prolactin levels. And if there's no, if you can't budge that prolactin, you know, giving them metoclopramide or domperidone and it's really low and they have no lactational changes. I mean, that's something that, you know, it is genetic and perhaps this is something that needs to be looked into uh, genetically so that they know for anticipatory guidance wise, like the case for uh, subsequent, uh, you know, for their children in the future. So that was interesting. Um, so interesting. I mean, truly, I have a, a friend here who I, uh, is a physician who I helped with breastfeeding, who's an adult endocrinologist. And I had this question for her once about prolactin. And she was like, oh, well, that's my boss. He's like this like world expert on prolactin. And it became clear after, you know, some further discussions that while he knows a ton about prolactin, very little of it relates to the function of prolactin as it relates to breastfeeding because it's studied more about, you know, when it goes wrong and causes infertility and other, other right. sorts of things. And it's just mind blowing that, that, you know, they haven't spent a lot of time understanding the, the actual function of it. Right. And, you know, the question is, I mean, I, I mean, the one thing that I wonder, like if you have a prolactin level that doesn't budge and it stays really super low, like super, you know, it's like physiologically just like lower than below normal. 
you know, the question is, should you do a brain MRI, you know, look at that pituitary gland, you know, because you can, if there is hypophysitis, there may be a mass there. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's something to talk to endocrinology about, but, you know, not just, I mean, I think if it's really low and it doesn't budge, we can't assume it's genetic because the other things I would think about is hypophysitis. And then the other thing is history of, in, of brain injury, like uh, traumatic brain injury. Or caused by a medication or medication, right? Like Abilify, like Eric. Yeah. Yes. I had that patient recently who actually had, you know, she actually did have breast growth during her pregnancy, but no milk came in day nine. We checked her prolactin. It was nine. And yeah. uh, she really wanted to breastfeed. And so stopping her Abilify and um, giving her a prolactin agonist, she her prolactin came up and she started making milk and she is now exclusively breastfeeding her two or three month old. Oh, you're kidding. That's so interesting because what I have seen is that when people take erythropoiesol and they have no breast changes in their, in during pregnancy, I assume that there's just not a lot of glandular growth. And so then I once did have a patient who really wanted to get off of Velify and try medical bromide and uh, didn't make any milk. So well, this gal even though her prolactin was very, very low, she did have changes during pregnancy. And it goes to that question that we were talking about recently of, you know, it's not entirely understood what is the role of prolactin in breast development during the pregnancy. You know, when we're inducing lactation, some people go ahead and give progestin and estrogen alone, and others also give a medicine to increase prolactin, but some wait until after the delivery. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. There's just a lot more to learn. That's why I love hearing all these abstracts. Yeah. I had a patient who just induced recently who is doing really well. She's only giving her babies like, I think almost eight weeks old. And she's only giving like four ounces of formula a day. And the baby's growing like more like, like gangbusters because the baby was born a little early at uh, 34 weeks. Baby's gaining like an ounce and a half a day. And um, she, she induced for surrogacy, but she, but she did have good milk production with previous children. She did not want to take any meds to raise her collectin level and did a couple months of birth control pills and uh, just pumped and, you know, didn't need any kind of collectin stimulating anything. So oh, she didn't so need interesting. a Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, I think the human species is older than dumb medical pomide. <laughs> we know that people have relactated many, many years. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So my last topic, I think you probably have a lot more to chat about is uh, about quiet time. So this is an article that is entitled quiet time to increase breastfeeding rates and enhance women's hospital experiences in postpartum period. And this was published in a large hospital in Mission Hills in California. Um, it was published, oh, in the um, A1 journal, which is the um, nursing journal. So uh, the, these authors really, I think we're looking for like a, you know, to do some kind of quality improvement study. They work in a really busy 21 bed postpartum unit in Mission Hills, California. The problem they identified is that there was a lot of unhappiness on the part of the parents based on surveys and just verbal things that parents would say due to the number of interruptions they had while they were in their rooms. 
the authors state that in order to minimize length of stay, you know, to get these patients out faster, they would just try to get a lot of stuff done, of course, you know, in a short period of time. So people like the birth certificate clerk, the hearing screener, the respiratory therapist, the primary nurse, the nurse leader, the lab, the nutrition person, the CNA, of course, the house cleaner, the person who picks up the dishes, you know, <laughs> and family members and friends. And it's like, ah, it's like, you know, Grand Central Station. So the parents were oftentimes, the authors stated that parents were oftentimes observed to be really tearful by afternoon, complaining of trouble latching, feeling tired, and complaining about the number of visitors. And their patient satisfaction scores gave low scores to unit quietness, which is one of the questions on the survey. And the authors say that there is evidence that when people, when people come into a room where there's a newborn and a mother who's trying to breastfeed, these mothers are prone to taking the babies off the breast when someone walks in the room. So the authors of the study, just, they decided to institute a quiet time from 1 to 3 p.m. And uh, there was a project leader who was assigned, and this leader spoke to all the parties, like all the people, you know, like the big wall of people who tend to come in to the room to let them know this is what we were doing, what they were doing, I should say. And they worked with the marketing department to make sure that this was on their brochure. This was discussed with families when they came for the maternity tours, and it was on their website as well. And then during quiet time, the staff interruptions were limited to emergencies or if the patient called for assistance. And visitors were also restricted to just that identified support person who was wearing a newborn ID bracelet. They found on average for nine days of no quiet, when they did not have quiet time during the intervention, there were an average of 76 interruptions in a day. That is a lot. And then after quiet time, the number of interventions decreased to 37. And the families were much more likely to rate the hospital unit as quiet. They didn't, however, find a statistically significant increase in the exclusive breastfeeding rate after instituting quiet time. Uh, they found that there were some challenges that people, that it was hard to, it was difficult to remind people that they shouldn't go into the room, people didn't remember that it was quiet time, especially those who were checking vitals, feeding logs, security checks, and things like that. But according to the authors, there is actually robust evidence for uh, quiet time from other studies as well. There was one study from 2018 that found a two-hour family bonding time, increased exclusive breastfeeding rates among 60 postpartum women, and then there was another study of 160 women that reported improved scores of breastfeeding effectiveness. I should mention that this study and others found that patients report greater nighttime quietness too. So they're asked about daytime and nighttime quietness. And this is not, not only this study, but the other two studies also mentioned that it seemed quieter at night as well. Although, uh, you know, these quiet times are only scheduled during the day. And so this is considered research-wise as a halo effect, but no one really gave a reason as to why that, why that was. And maybe people were just being more cognizant of like not coming in, although it's night shift who don't work during the day or whatever, I don't know. Um, I just wanna end by saying that I've always been a big fan of visiting hours because um, I grew up in medicine with visiting hours, like back in the eighties and early nineties, we always had visiting hours. You know, I, we thought that when people were in the hospital, they should rest. And then it seemed that, you know, it seemed like 
we started liberalizing this everywhere. And by the late 90s into the 2000s, there were no visiting hours on any floor that I worked. And I used to then tell my patients, I know you're tired, all these people coming in, but you know, the hospital is really not a place to rest. It's a place, it's not a place to rest, it's a place to get diagnosed and to get better if you're getting therapy, but it's not a place to rest. You need to go home and rest. And I think that this is kind of that way of like, you know, turning this around, like we do need to let people rest. We do need to take them out of their environment so they can get some rest. Um, what were the visiting hours though in the eighties? Were they all day or were they just no, like No, they're usually hours? like one to four or something like that. Yeah, they were usually, yeah. Especially on um, postpartum, they were like one to four. I think they should be from 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. and postpartum when people could actually be useful and hold the baby so mom yeah. could go to sleep. Right. And then we used to have visiting hours, you know, that people would leave at 8 p.m. Like everyone had to leave the hospital at 8 p.m. I don't know. Do you have that in your hospital? Yeah. 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 I, I, I'm not sure if we do anymore. I mean, it's been a couple of years since they kicked us out as hospitalists. <laughs> they kicked us out and they hired full-time hospitalists at our hospital. So we're not like allowed to do that anywhere. Allowed to be. I mean, it depends on the, the situation, right? Like in the ICU, the pediatric ICU, there was always, you know, family allowed all the time. I think, you know, it's been really interesting, particularly with COVID because there was a long period when no visitors were allowed. And we really saw the impact of that on our patients in terms of them getting more rest and getting, you know, more breastfeeding experience. And as time has gone by and we've seen more and more visitors, particularly recently, it's been a bummer. And then last month I saw that the newborn photography cart was back and I was oh. mourning. I was like, oh, it takes forever. Uh, it's always just like, you know, just one more thing. Yeah. No, it's it just, yeah, I, that you would imagine, you know, the baby has the feeding cues and they're working on this photograph and that's crazy. But I like when I used to do newborn rounds, I used to go in the house, I used to go into the room in the morning and, you know, look at the people, all the people that were in there, you know, the, the family, the friends, the, the people with the candy cigars and the people with the, you know, the flowers and say, no, you, you, you need to leave. Like these, the, the, the mother here, this family here has to bond. And this baby is going to be up at night starting at 11 PM. This baby's going to be ready to party and they need to be up for that. Are you guys going to come back at 11 PM? Take care of this baby. Like go home and take care of the house, clean the house, stock the refrigerator with food, cook a bunch of food so they can come home and just be like, take care of their baby. They don't need your help right now in the hospital. They don't, they're not coming to help. They're coming to ooh and not the baby. I always tell people like, yes. people will be just as excited to see this beautiful baby in three weeks. They will be just as cute. Okay, there'll be some baby acne. But right. I mean, it is it is really amazing that quiet hours, which we have in my postpartum unit, which are two of the 24 hours of the day are considered necessary and adequate. Wow. So it's interesting so to see that this was considered impactful because I'm always like, how the heck are those two hours of the day going to make any difference? And how sad that we have to like encourage people to like not interrupt the family. Yeah. Well, actually, what we used to have is visit. We rather than quiet time years ago, we used to have visiting hours. 
you know, where visiting hours are like from 10 to one and then like five to eight, you know? So there are these, these times that you could come in and see the patients. And other times, you know, if you're not the primary support person, you're not allowed to come in, you know? Uh, so that's another way of looking at it is just having visiting hours for these floors. And it also would probably keep everyone healthier to not bring all these other germs in there, you know? Well, and I mean, also it's what you said of the number of interactions because where I am, like, yeah, that's nice that there's visiting hours, but the doctor still comes in because I have to round on my patients until they're all seen. So I don't stop from one to three, but we have these signs on the outside of all the doors that if you flip them around, it says, please do not disturb resting. And, yes. you know, the nurses will put that up, particularly if they know the family is like, you know, fed the baby and now they're trying to nap. And so I tell all my patients, just put that sign up all the time. The doctors yeah. and the nurses still come, but the person who's like the cleaning supervisor who wants to know if they cleaned today, like, you don't, who cares? Go away. I'm sleeping. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's uh, you know, there just needs to be that initiative of really consciously reducing the number of interruptions. I mean, I think that's, you know, there's, there's just a uh, different, uh, priorities pulling right like they want to have that nurse manager around to make sure that their hcap scores are going to be good because exactly yeah but you know talking about burnout i mean like they've been doing a lot at our institution to reduce physician burnout like we do see the times of meetings you know so they can look at patient burnout (laughs) they get burnt out after two days i mean patients leave in 24 hours right because they're like i can't i can't sleep here like this is crazy and so they leave the hospital and uh, that's not necessarily good, you know, for some of these families who really need more support. So yeah, well, that's all I got today. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. I saw that uh, there was an article that came up on the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine listserv today that pointed to a hot off the press article on a study showing that breastfeeding in the United States is associated with lower infant mortality and just any breastfeeding. So I thought that was really cool. And that, that, that reduced mortality has to do with reduced hospitalization for infections. Mm. So just as a reminder, you know, we'll have to check that one out. Maybe next time when we, when we podcast next time, we'll have a chance to look at it. Absolutely. Okay. All right, Karen. Well, it's great great talking to you. We'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. And happy Halloween. Yeah, you too. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the clinical question of the week, our little green book of breastfeeding management for physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.